The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran when we kill animals to eat them they end up killing us because their flesh which contains cholesterol and saturated fat was never intended for human beings who are natural herbivores American Journal of Cardiology, 2003. A pure vegetarian diet can prevent 90% of our thromboembolic disease and 97% of our coronary occlusions. Journal of the American Medical Association, 1961. Today, no one can deny the possibility of adequate nutrition and the prolonged maintenance of health and vigor on a vegetarian diet, Journal of the American Medical Association, 1912. This information has been around for a while, and acting on it can change your life today. Hi, I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program, and so happy to have you with us. After the break, we're going to be talking with Leah Garces from Mercy for Animals about her fascinating and somewhat controversial book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. And right now, we are going to be talking about health, great health, your health, my health, everybody's health with Dr. Pam Popper. She is a naturopathic physician. She is author of um, the wonderful book, Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Can Save Your Life. And she's also executive director of Wellness Forum Health. Dr. Popper serves on the PCRM Steering Committee, the President's Board of PCRM. She's also been featured in all kinds of documentary films, including Processed People, Making a Killing, Food Choices, Diet Fiction, and the inimitable Forks Over Knives. Welcome, Dr. Popper. Well, thank you for having me. It's going to be fun, and we have lots of stuff to talk about. I always enjoy people who have a lot of things to ask me. 
Well, I have lots to ask you and people who are members of the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners group on Facebook have lots to ask you too. So some of these questions have come in from listeners. But let's get started first with your personal history. How did you become a healer? Well, it was sort of accidental, actually. Um, I came from a background of business. I was a sales trainer for a big company located in the South, and um, I really did not care much about personal health. I didn't watch my diet. I was fat. Um, I, I used to say I was big boned, but that was just being kind to myself. I look at pictures back then. I was fat and uh, just sort of ate whatever I wanted. And most of what I wanted was cookies and coffee and cheese and garbage. I just lived on garbage. And I wasn't very physically active. And um, my last job, I traveled a lot. And I've always said if your habits are bad, they're worse when you're on the road. And my mine certainly got even worse than that. And uh, so one day, quite accidentally, this was like in 1993 or 94, uh, I ended up reading an article. I was sitting in an airport, delayed flight, bought a magazine, and there was an article about diet and health, and I never heard anything like that. And, of course, today you see this every day, but back then it really was sort of an unusual thing. And it got me curious. And then this really fortuitous thing happened. I mentioned this to a friend of mine. So I read this interesting article, and she said, oh, I've got a book I'm going to loan you. You should read if you're interested in nutrition. And she gave me John McDougall's book. And I'm so glad it wasn't Dr. Atkins' book, because you and I would be having a different <laughs> discussion today if it had been. So I read this book, and here's this medical doctor who's been helping people with multiple sclerosis and diabetes. And I thought, wow, how come I didn't know this? You know how you like to think that you're so with it and educated and all that? And I was really not with it or educated on this topic at all. So I really took that book to heart. I changed my diet. It really started with a personal journey for me. Um, I lost weight. I, I remember when I ran a marathon and people were just flabbergasted. I mean, I used to put my uh, garbage cans on the hood of my car and drive them to the street to avoid moving. So running a marathon was kind of a remarkable thing for me. And then the, the more you get into this, the more it affects you personally in a really profound way, I think, the more you want to talk to other people about it. So it ended up being a career. And that's how I got here today. Short, short version of the story. And that's a great story. Have you seen the movie Brittany Runs a Marathon? No, I haven't. It's I haven't. it's really fun. It's great, she, she's not plant-based, at least as far as I know, but it's a very inspiring <laughs> film of somebody taking charge of her health and her life. So I want to ask you first about the condition that there's been a whole lot of talk about on the podcast listeners group, and that is osteoporosis. Tell us what we don't already know. Well, I think the first thing is that most people who are told they have it don't have it. Um, if it's diagnosed through a DEXA scan, if we would even call that a diagnosis, um, it, that, that doesn't diagnose osteoporosis. In fact, it's a machine that's designed to tell you that you're losing bone mineral density, and we all lose it as we age. Women lose it more than men because we have higher peak bone mineral density because the demands of carrying children and breastfeeding are pretty significant. So um, the only medicine could design a test that tells you you're getting older is if you didn't know that, right? That's what it really tells you. Um, now, having said that, we we do have problems with um, particularly women developing osteoporosis, and it usually happens, uh, first of all, because of lack of physical activity. You almost never see it in, a, in an active um, muscular person. You, Olympic athletes do not get osteoporosis, and one of the reasons is that they're really well-developed bodies. So exercise is a big part of it, and then the foods that you eat can make a big difference. Um, for example, eating a diet 
uh, that's concentrated in animal foods and processed foods, high acid load and to buffer the acidity, the body just uh, routinely borrows minerals, uh, buffering minerals like calcium and sodium from the tissues and bones. And so your diet can affect it. And then people take drugs that affect their bone health, like Steroids are handed out like candy, you know, in doctor's offices these days. It's, it, it scares me how many people take steroids, which damage and thin out the bones. Um, people who are treated for cancer often have thinning bones. So the, the DEXA scan isn't an accurate way to diagnose, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a problem with people allowing their bones to thin and become weaker over time due to not taking care of themselves the right way. Wow. So what would you say to somebody who had this diagnosis? Make sure that they got the right test, and then what? Well, I don't think you want to get tested. Here's how you know if you've, if you've got a problem with your bones, all right? If you are carrying a lot of body fat and you're not muscular, you're probably not strength training. Um, so, so just how your athleticism says a lot. And, you know, it's, uh, as hard as it is to get people to eat right, it's even harder to get them to exercise in my experience. So um, being physically active, you need to get sunshine. Taking vitamin D is not a substitute for sunshine. Your, your body produces 10,000 uh, phytochemicals and and um, uh, and various chemicals when you are out in the sun. Vitamin D3 is not a substitute for the ten types of vitamin D and the thousands and thousands of products that your photo products that your body produces. So, um, it, you know, you got to get out in the sun, uh, do weight bearing exercise, make sure your digestive tract is in good order. I mean, you can watch TV for 45 minutes and see five ads for proton pump inhibitors and laxatives and everything else. So, you, if you're not absorbing nutrients from food, you can eat really well. It still doesn't make any difference. And then, of course, look at your diet. Um, so those, that's the recipe for strong bones. And if you're not doing those things, then your bones are not strong and they'll get weaker as you age. So um, that's the better way to evaluate it. We tend to think that, that testing people regularly is a good idea. But the problem with doing that is that people are told that their test results are good, even if it's not really a valid test. But even if it were, then they go home, they say, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I guess I'm getting away with it. So I think the better thing is look at your habits and start living in a way that leads to the result that most people actually want, which is to live independently for their full lifespan. For sure. Oh, I love how you think. So let's just skip ahead to the athlete part because uh, you, you brought that up. Now, I know you are an athlete, and, and in my world, I keep running into you guys. It's like, my God, I met a lot of Olympic medalists. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> and, and you're a runner. You, we can just look at you and say, oh, my gosh, this woman is made of muscle. So for people who are more, you know, readers and film goers, how much exercise do we really need to be in adequate health and what kind? Yeah, so we have to start with the idea that if you had a, t let's, let's just try to visualize for a minute, you've got a two foot long line. And this is the entire time that humans have lived on the planet. And then you go over to the right side of the line, and the last one hundredth of one inch, that's the time we live in right now where we have the option to sit and survive. <laughs> All right? So humans wow. used to have to really work hard just to have food and run away from predators. And, and even once we started farming and, and living much more organized lives and communities, there was still a lot of physical work that had to be done, you know, pumping well water. and So, so it's a very tiny sliver of time where humans have had the option to live sitting, which is, doesn't mean it's a good option. It just means that we could do it. So if you're going to 
have a healthy life. You're going to need to exercise five or six days a week because most of us don't have jobs that result in getting in your target heart zone and lifting things and all that sort of thing that um, that would take the place of this. So you need to exercise five or six days a week for 45 to 60 minutes in your target heart zone. And a couple of those sessions should be weight-bearing sessions and uh, weight training and some aerobic activity. I thought I'm a promoter of yoga. Full disclosure, I own a yoga studio here in my building, but um, I think yoga is good. And, and, of course, the first thing that people say when I say that is, oh, my gosh, that's an outrageous amount of time. I never would have the time. Well, I'll tell you this. If you don't do this, you're going to have a lot of time on your hands when you get to the place where you can't go anywhere and you can't live in your house anymore because the leading reason why people get committed to nursing homes is they're too frail to live on their own. So you will have an ungodly amount of time at some point in time if you live long enough if you're not willing to do this right now. So yeah, I have an 89-year-old father who still lives on his own, and of course I'm concerned about him. He's 89, but I don't worry about, oh my gosh, he's going to trip up the stairs or fall down or he can't tie his shoes. I mean, I don't worry about that because he's physically very, very strong. And so you want to be like that. You don't want to have your family visiting you in a home. That is so great. I saw that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's trainer has a book out, <laughs> that it's the Ruth Bader Ginsburg workout. And I thought Wonderful. that is so cool that, that somebody important in 86 is working out. Yay. Yeah. Love it. And, we, and what a great role model that is. We need to be talking that up more. And along that line, I don't know if you remember that show, To Tell the Truth. Kitty Carlisle oh, was yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember one year I was watching the, the Today Show or something while I was running on the treadmill, and Kitty Carlisle was 95 years old when she was on the Today Show, and she was on with her trainer. And he showed, they did a piece of her workout on the show. And, um, and of course, everybody, the, the hosts are going, oh, my gosh, she's so fit and all that. And the trainer said, yeah, she is. But he said, the bigger point that I want everybody to take home is that she's 95 and she lives in her own apartment and she can tie her shoes and reach up in the cabinet and get a glass and not break a bone and uh, go to the market down the street and cook food. And that's really what this is all about. I mean, it's wonderful to be strong and fit, and I like being that way. But I, I really am planning for a long future of productivity and doing what I want and, and that sort of thing. And that's that's what this really all becomes about. That is so inspiring. Now, let me ask you something. Nobody has ever answered for me in a way that I really got it. I'm asking you a New Yorker question. We walk all the time. We are out. We are going up and down subway stairs. It's not in the target heart zone and all that, but it's just movement. How much credit do we get for that? You get some credit for it. The The problem is that, that um, you don't develop any aerobic capacity from it, nor do you develop upper body strength. And so there's a, this is a big thing, I think, that confuses a lot of people, the difference between being active and actually athletically trained. Um, because we used to just have to work a whole lot harder, going back to what I said earlier. So I'm, I'm the same way. I, I live in Columbus, and we can't walk everywhere here. But I have a, a pretty large home here, and I have a summer home, and I clean them myself. Um, I weed my own flower beds, and I wash my own deck. And I'm in a 14,000-square-foot building where my office is, and you know, I don't know how many steps I take all day long, but you know, for me to go from here to where the office supplies 
are is a is a hike, you know, and there's a gym in the back. So so the point is I'm I'm pretty physically active just to function in what I do. And I shop for food and you know, I I'm, I'm I'm pretty self-sufficient. I don't hire a lot of things out because I don't like to do that. But but my point is that it's not a substitute for going in the gym and getting to the place where I can bench press 100 pounds because that's that's what you know you to and not, not everybody has to do that, but 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 I'm really bent on this independence thing, and just walking and cleaning my house is not going to put me there. It's great okay. that I'm active. I spend less yeah. time sitting than many people, but that's not a substitute for the exercise. I get it. Well, you have done a first. You have answered a question that I've probably asked a dozen times, and now I get it. So thank you. So there are a couple other questions from listeners. One person wants to know, is it necessary to do the no oil diet if one already has a cholesterol around 150 on a vegan diet that contains oil? Well, here's the problem with oil. The first thing is that uh, it, many people get away with consuming it from a weight perspective. I'm not one of those people, and I don't think most people actually do in the long term. So a tablespoon of oil has 14 grams of fat, all right, and, and 120 calories. So let's just treat this like a math issue because that's what it comes down to. So I'm five, six and a half, something like that, five, seven. And I weigh 119 pounds. All right, so if I didn't change anything, and I exercise sometimes every day because it's pretty easy to do in this building with a gym and a yoga studio in it. So I exercise um, every day, and I eat a pretty optimal diet. But if I just took my lunchtime salad, which is a pretty big one, and I put three tablespoons of an oil-based salad dressing on it, and I didn't change something, I mean, I'd have to pull out calories from somewhere or get an extra workout, and I'd gain 36 pounds in a year. That's a lot. So two-thirds of the country's overweight or obese are heading in that direction, and I think it's just hard to justify the consumption of pure liquid fat uh, with that type of data. The other thing is, even if you get away with it from a weight perspective, we now have the technology to take apart atherosclerotic plaque, and we know that those plaques are filled with mono and polyunsaturated fat, not just saturated fat. So I think a pretty good argument can be made to get the oil out of the diet. Now, I, when I talk about getting the oil out of the diet, that's what we teach here, we're talking about the obvious sources of oil. So this would be things like um, an olive oil-based salad dressing. Okay, my salad dressing has 7.5 calories per tablespoon, so if I drink the whole bottle for lunch, I can't really hurt myself, right? So instead of trying to measure out stuff that's hard to measure and keep yourself in check, just buy stuff where you don't have to do that. If you buy the, um, um, the Sabra hummus in the grocery store, Two tablespoons has five grams of fat. Nobody eats two tablespoons of hummus, by the way. If you saw what a tiny amount it is, most people are consuming, you know, 20 grams of fat in the hummus. Um, marinara sauce can have five grams of fat per half cup serving if it's oil-based. So, so get that out of the diet. Now, having said that, if I go to a restaurant uh, with some friends and I order, um, I often eat a lot of side dishes, so I order, you know, the asparagus side dish along with some other things, and it looks like they grilled the asparagus um, with, um, you know, on a, on a grill that was oiled. I don't need to send that back. I don't have stents. I haven't had a heart attack. My IQ is higher than my cholesterol. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's the end of the world. But, but I can certainly order a salad with a dressing that doesn't have oil in it. Again, the overt parts, uh, you know, things that contain oil. And I think that that's a good practice to get into. The other thing I tell people not to do when they're trying to figure out what to do from a diet standpoint is all of this negotiating with yourself. Like, I can do this because 
because of that, then I can be a little, do, you know, all of this less and more and not too much, and as long as my cholesterol is this, I can get away with that. That usually doesn't lend itself to a good long-term result. So I'm a big fan of prescriptive communication, which is we set forth some rules that we're going to live by, and then it's life is just easier. We're not negotiating with ourselves. There's not so much mental energy tied up with this stuff every day. Mm. Very cool. And since you mentioned salad dressing, I just want to share with everybody that I finally found a bottled no oil dressing that I actually like. And that's the 365 brand balsamic vinaigrette at Whole Foods. They've got regular, which is all oily, and they have light, which is kind of half and half, but they have no oil and it's actually good. So I celebrated a little bit when I found that. So somebody else is is writing uh, on a similar vein. But she says her cholesterol is what she describes as dangerously low, as are her sex hormones. And her doctor wants her back on animal products, which she does not want to do. Smart woman. What would you tell her? Well, the first thing is I hear this all the time, your cholesterol is dangerously low. But I think one of the things that uh, we found out in the data from China study is that a lot of the counties in China where there was virtually no heart disease, I mean, no heart attacks in populations over 65 years old. Their, their cholesterol was, by definition of Western standards, dangerously low. So I don't know. We'd, we'd have to look at defining that more clearly to see if there's really a problem. Um, and also, I'd want to know if it's a one-time test or it's consistently low because biometric. You know, when you get when you get tests done, if something's really abnormal, the first thing you do is test again to see if it's real because a lot of times it's not. Errors in lab samples and that sort of thing. So there's some variables here that we'd need to know more about but if if it is dangerously low and sex hormones are dangerously low and that's another subjective term um, I just got off the phone with one of our members whose doctor has her on a progesterone cream because her progesterone levels are really low I said well you're 54 years old and progesterone is a hormone that facilitates pregnancy and I don't know how you feel about being pregnant at 54, but I'm going to be 63 in a few weeks, and if I get pregnant, I'm driving my car into the river, and it's going to be the end of everything. I won't be back. I mean, it's just I'm saying I don't want to do that at 63, right? So, so there's some definitions here that we have to work out, but let's assume for the moment that both numbers are abnormally low. The first question I ask when somebody is here is why? What's causing this? It's not a deficiency of animal foods. There's something metabolically wrong. And if we were to somehow manage to make those numbers higher, by eating steak, that would be just not a whole lot different than taking medication. It doesn't fix the problem. It just masks the problem for a period of time. And I think that one of the reasons our medical system is in such terrible shape is we're consistently addressing symptoms instead of cause. And so I would uh, argue against um, doing anything, whether it's eating animal foods or anything else, until you know what the cause is. If you fix the cause, then everything else will take care of itself. Oh, that's terrific. Well, she did write that she had found a plant-based doctor. So hopefully he or she will be as wonderful as you. Now, the oh, kind you. of doctor that you are is naturopathic. And people often ask me, since I raised my daughter vegan back in the 1980s and 90s, if I got flack for that from, from pediatricians. And I said, no, the only flack I got was from doctors of naturopathy, chiropractic, traditional Chinese medicine, so I don't know if it's still like that. I kind of think it is. And I wonder how you got to be so different from your professional colleagues. 
Um, it is still like that. And I think naturopathy is a very misguided profession. And the first thing that I tell people is uh, if you're going to succeed at figuring out truth in health and diet and that sort of thing, you've got to get rid of all the labels. All right? It doesn't really matter naturopathic ideas, Chinese medicine, Western medicine, this medicine, that medicine. Uh, I think this just all has to be about evidence and having a filter for evidence that we all agree is the right filter because then it just takes you to the answer that we all agree we're going to accept based on the filtering method. Now, to translate that to English, all right, so these are some of the ways that we filter. Number one, is there a conflict of interest? I don't care who did the research, naturopaths or medical doctors or men in the moon, is there a conflict of interest? Um, Are we talking about something that is statistically significant but clinically meaningless? In other words, drugs reduce, you know, statin drug reduces your risk of heart attack by 1.2%. I don't think anybody feels really protected by that. It's It's statistically significant. It's clinically meaningless for the person, right? So anyway, I won't go through the whole criteria here. We could maybe do another show on it, but the bottom line is that I've never had anybody make an argument for taking out any of our criteria. And so at the end of the day, you filter the information, it is where it is, and you end up with a conclusion. And unfortunately, this is not what's being taught in traditional medical school, naturopathic medical school, homeopathic school. You know, if, if pick any label you want. It's just we're not teaching people to filter based on an evidence standard. And I think until in all branches of medicine we do this, we're going to see the same type of nonsense going on that we see right now, which is doctors, nurses, dietitians, health professionals of all types, naturopathic and otherwise, giving people bad advice because it's not evidence-based and arguing with, I mean, I wish everybody came in here was, was vegan. My life would be so much easier. We might still have some things to fix, but it sure is a much better starting point. I can't fathom why anybody would talk somebody out of eating a vegan diet and feeding a vegan diet to their children who's actually looking at evidence. So I don't Wonderful. know if that helps, but that's what I have to say about it. So, so people need to see someone like you. And if they're in Columbus, there is uh, the Wellness Forum. And we'll have all your URLs on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So tell us about Wellness Forum and how people can access your brilliance. We've got almost two oh. minutes. Well, thank you. Wellness Forum, we're based in Columbus, but we do business in 33 countries. No matter where you live, we can help you. Um, We serve consumers, and our specialty is informed medical decision-making, which means we help people learn how to look at evidence and decide what to do, whether it's what diet you're going to eat or a supplement you're going to take or a test or a drug you're going to take. Um, We also offer professional development programs for people who want to be in the healthcare business, either, for example, a doctor who wants to learn how to do this, says, I want to to do evidence-based medicine in the sense that Pam talks about it, and um, and for people who um, uh, are not in the field and want to be. We we offer the equivalent of a dietetics degree, only science-based, through our school the Wellness Forum Institute. So um, both consumers and healthcare professionals come here to learn how to understand what we understand, what you and I have been talking about. Um, I do a lot of free stuff for people. Uh, we have, um, I put out a newsletter on Monday and video clips on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's all free. You can get a college education in a, in a very short period of time and very digestible uh, uh, you know, time frames. And uh, people can email me at pampopper at msn.com and I can add you to the list. Wonderful. Well, you can add me, that's for sure. Dr. Pam Popper, you are a wonder. I wish uh, we had done this sooner and we will definitely do it again soon. So thank you so very much. 
And everybody else, stay with us through these breaks, and we will be back with Leah Garces and Grilled. Stay with us. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Thanks again for being with us, and I do invite you to pay a visit to MainStreetVegan.net, where the blog post this week is from Deborah Shapiro, MD. It's called The Annoying Vegan, complete with fabulous cartoons. And while you're there, you can also explore Main Street Vegan Academy, training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators in arguably the most vegan-friendly city on Earth. I mean, we do call it the Big Apple. So check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. And also, if you happen to be in Delaware, I will be there the evening of Thursday, September 26th, speaking in Wilmington with Jeffrey Cohan of Jewish Veg for Peace Week. And you'll find info on that on the events page at MainStreetVegan.net. And on Saturday the 28th, we will both be at Victory Church in Newcastle for a screening of A Prayer for Compassion, the documentary that introduces vegan living to people of faith. And we'll be doing a talk back after that. So you can go to MainStreetVegan.net and just click the film link for that information. And now I am so happy to be introducing to you Leah Garces. She is president of Mercy for Animals, one of my favorite organizations, and she has been fighting for better food and farming systems for nearly 20 years. She oversaw international campaigns in 14 countries at the World Society for the Protection of Animals, and she launched Compassion in World Farming in the U.S., Her brand new book is Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Leah's work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and I'm proud to welcome you, Leah, to the Main Street Vegan Podcast. I am so excited to be here. Thank you, Victoria. Really I, I am loving your book. You are a really good writer. Oh, I always nice. talk to my nonfiction authors about you're not just giving us fascinating information, but you're giving it in a way that it reads like a novel. Well, I definitely, in, that's the way I intended to write it because I've read too many um, fact-filled books. And, you know, over my years, I know that facts don't stick as well with people's hearts and minds as stories do. So what I tried to do is really weave in a memoir type approach to and anchoring it to these really hard hitting facts about chicken factory farming and the need for change. Well, in my opinion, you have succeeded. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Now, this is a very brave book. And I find the title grilled 
maybe a triple entendre because my <laughs> sense is that you must be getting grilled about it mm-hmm. from certain colleagues in the animal rights movement. So what kind of response are you getting from within the ranks? From within the, the vegan movement, the animal yeah. advocacy movement? Yes, that so, one. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Hours. Um, you know, since it's been out, I have not had controversy around it. But before, as I was building up to it, um, certainly there was a lot of uh, statements like I am a, a traitor to the cause that I, you know, sitting down, how could I sit down with these evil people? And I still get the question I had, you know, just yesterday in an interview, well, how do you not just see these people as pure evil? How can you even contemplate sitting down and talking to them and trying to find common ground? What common ground could we possibly find? And so, you know, the the sellout trade, the trader kind of comments, they have really subsided because I think there's a real energy and realization as we see companies like KFC doing beyond chicken trials and Burger King doing impossible, that there is some truth to like trying to sit down with these industries and instead of trying to put them out of business, get them on a different path. So I think the narrative publicly and in the media right now is helping um, tell us that, you know, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray and we need to sort of push these so-called adversaries into a better path. And there's a real opportunity to help animals that way. So for people who haven't read the book, tell us who the adversaries are. Are we talking about KFC people? Are we talking about farmers? Who who are you talking to? All of them. (laughs) So, you know, there's, um, the book focuses both on, on factory farmers themselves and on the meat industry or executives in charge of big companies that uh, purchase a lot of the meat and chicken in particular. Uh, so it, it really goes through me being really uh, an enemy to a factory farmer to then me actually meeting one and then sitting down and having a conversation with him and finding myself in his living room. His name was Craig Watts. And understanding for the first time his perspective why like really being open to listen why had he signed up to this and breaking down those reasons and realizing well if I had been here at that moment and it offered him something else he would have chosen it but he was kind of you know chose it not because he was an evil person but because he had few other economic choices at the time um and that sort of began my my path of of kind of of working with these so-called enemies and that later led to me being open to conversations with meat executives and the industry itself. So can you just give us overall their premise? And I know that's a broad sweeping question. Maybe you want to say the farmer's premise, the industry's premise, but what are they saying? How, how do they justify or rationalize or whatever you'd want to call it? How can we see it from their point of view? Yeah, and, and this took me a long, long time to get to, um, where most of the time I wanted to get in the room, and when I got in the room, all I would want them to do is stop, stop animal agriculture altogether. And their premise is basically they have an economic model that has been handed over to them. It's a company, and the thing they care about most is the bottom line, their brand, shareholders, paying their employees, growing their business, pleasing their customers. And if, you know, the idea is that really, you know, it could be chickens, it could be tables, it could be 
it could be grass, it could be anything. And essentially, if we can replace that, and they still can have a strong brand and a strong a way to pay their employees and grow their business, um, then we can we can move together in, in a similar direction, which is where we're now trying to work with companies, for example, like talking to KFC on their Beyond Chicken tests that they did in Atlanta or Burger King on Impossible Burgers. Those are, you know, where you see a company and, and you might think it's crazy to suggest that a company like Purdue or Tyson would move in this direction. But the truth is they're testing it out already. So Tyson is developing a new line of meat alternatives. Cargill, one of the biggest uh, meat companies in the world, renamed its meat department to a protein department, you know, like signifying that they're exploring, like protein doesn't have to come from animals. And, you know, Purdue is exploring plant-based protein too. So, you know, like five years ago, it would seem crazy to say, a chicken company, a major chicken company is going to change its business model, but they are, and they're talking like Jim Purdue came out in a, in a Bloomberg article saying that all their business model is to be the premium protein company for the world. And nothing about that says it has to come from animals. And this blows my mind. If we start trying to to not to try to find the the what is it that they want they want to basically grow their business pay their employees grow their shareholders and if we can offer an alternative then i think we can accelerate progress and the same goes with these factory farmers factory farmers have many of the people that i've met they're living in rural areas of america quite often with no other economic opportunities so the farmer i worked with craig watts had been his family had been for five generations in the in rural North Carolina, in Fairmont, North Carolina, which is the poorest county in North Carolina. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. And he basically wanted to stay on the land and raise his kids there. And there was no other option. So when the poultry industry came to town and offered him this job, it was his only option, really, to live the life that he wanted that is his family had lived. And so, you know, that's, that's why he chose it. And so trying to think of another way <coughs> that he could stay on the land and offer an alternative, like growing mushrooms or hemp, we have to think of, instead of, you know, trying to destroy these companies, these individuals, trying to offer them an alternative path, I think can accelerate progress. Is anybody doing that? You know, there, there seems like there's a nonprofit organization for everything under the sun but I certainly have never seen one that offers help to farmers who would like to go from animal agriculture to some kind of plant-based agriculture. Well, Victoria, um, <laughs> Mercy for Animals is exploring this idea right now. So Ooh. yes, and I agree with you. It's not being done and it needs to be done. It's, and it's not just from the perspective, um, you know, I think most of your listeners are animal rights activists themselves and, and vegans, but it's not just because I think the, the solution is needed, but I think it changes the narrative about who we are as activists. We're not here to destroy, we're here to construct something better. And I think the narrative, especially in rural areas of America, is like, oh, these activists are just you know, here to destroy our way of life, destroy our livelihood. And if we can change that narrative and get these people on our side and say, no, no, we are here to construct a better way, a way that's fair for you 
and it's not hurting animals, it's not hurting the environment, let's work on that together and be actively constructing that more compassionate food system. That really excites me to change that narrative. And also I think it's needed. So last month I went out to visit a farmer uh, that I had worked with previously um, in West Virginia. And he and I worked together to expose the conditions on his farm. He was raising uh, chickens for Pilgrim's Pride and it was horrific and there was disease and he couldn't get rid of the disease. He couldn't get help from Pilgrim's Pride. Um, and I left him a camera and he filmed inside of his houses showing the disease. And then we went out with a video that ended up in the New York Times. And then he didn't stop. He ended up quitting chicken farming. He's like, I can't take this. It's un he, you know, he's unfair to the farmers. It's unfair to the chickens. And he ended up um, doing something completely innovative and new. He didn't stop there. He decided to do hemp farming. And he's now transformed his chicken houses into hemp farms. He's <laughs> And it's amazing. And he's going to make so much more money. So he used to make $30,000 off of his two houses on chickens. And he's going to make 600000 now because, and he's doing CBD oil. And there's all kinds of innovations that are coming to our economy and our market all the time. And all these farmers need is an alternative model. So it's something I'm really passionate about is finding that alternative model and creating an option for farmers to get out. And uh, and, and changing the narrative about who we are as animal activists and, and being this kind of positive, you know, constructive force, especially in the rural economies where we're often seen as the opposite. And it really inhibits our ability to pass legislation or, you know, work with companies because I think it's, it's a very us against them mentality. I love that story. I love that he is going to make all that money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote a book called The Good Karma Diet. And I think mm -hmm. about it in terms of when we eat this way, you know, wonderful things happen for our health and that oftentimes. And yet it, it's a good karma lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So and he's just a of uh, an exhibition A of that. That's wonderful. So I, I do need to ask you about this term that we hear often, humane farming. Mm -hmm. And even though only two to 3% of agriculture could count it that as that, even if it is indeed humane, probably 50% of the people that I know who eat animal products say that they only eat the humane kind. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so what do you do with all that? And where do we put those folks? Yeah, well, as you say, you know, I think there's a real misconception. People think that, and, and I hear it all the time, just like you, Victoria, where they're like, oh, I only eat the, you know, pasture raised, whatever. And it's just not true because the model, the economics don't, that's not what's happening at the grocery store. It's not even available. Right. And, you know, I think that first of all, we have to be truth tellers about that and, and just telling people they need to ask the question and really make sure their values line up with their choices is a really important way to frame it so that it's not judging them, but asking them to explore it for themselves and making sure they feel comfortable with their choice. Um, and, you know, for Mercy for Animals, our perspective is really about reducing suffering while ending the exploitation of animals for food. And we do both. We do both the, you know, in incremental changes within a company. And one of the benefits of that is it makes the products much more expensive. And we know that when products become more expensive, people eat less of them, which is how we also know people are not actually, you know, choosing them either, even though they say they are. 
Uh, and I often get challenged on this point to your first question. You asked me kind of like, how are people responding to this? Um, and my answer to that is an analogy, which, you know, is, is not my own analogy, but I've heard many advocates use, which is if you were a prisoner in a terrible prison and you were on death row, would you want someone advocating both, would you want somebody advocating, advocating only for the end of death of your death sentence? Or would you also want them while advocating for the end of your death sentence, also work on improving your life in that prison so that, you know, as you're there, it's you suffer less. And as advocates, I think it's our responsibility to do both because the reality is there's 81 billion farmed animals that are raised and slaughtered every year. And that's just land animals every year. And as, as fast as we want things to move towards no death for them, no exploitation at all, we have a responsibility to the animals that are in the farms. And so we work on both reducing their suffering and also ending their exploitation altogether. And we have to do both. Um, kind of got off on a tangent there. Sorry, Victoria. No, that's a worthwhile tangent. At least I say that because I completely agree with you. I'm sure we could have someone else on the program who, who would argue with it. And I love your, your death row analogy because it, it makes absolute sense, you know, yeah. to, to say to someone who's suffering, I'm working so that your great, great, great grandchildren won't have to suffer. That's a nice idea, but excuse me, I'm here now. Right, right. Oh, well, yeah. bless your heart. So let's let's talk about the public. I, I loved what you said about how these companies just want to make a profit and the wonderful power that we all have as, as consumers is that we'll direct that. If people say to Tyson at all, chicken, 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 I only want chicken that have been slaughtered, that's going to be one thing. And if people say, I want chicken nuggets that taste like chicken and aren't chicken, yeah. that's what they're going to be making. So how do we get more people to choose the plant-based options? Well, first we got to get it as an option. And I think that is what we're starting to see companies do. And then when they test it out, we have to go bonkers over it. And that's what we're, so Mercy for Animals came to Atlanta. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. And KFC decided to test out for one day only in <laughs> one of their Atlanta stores, uh, the Beyond Chicken. And they only announced it 24 hours beforehand. So literally my coworker, Stephanie, had to come from LA with her video you know, equipment and overnight came here. And we jumped in a car and we got to KFC and we got there as it was opening at 1030, I think. And by the time we got there, there was a double line wrapped around, like in the drive-thru, a double line wrapped around the KFC. And there was a line of people all the way around the building. There was traffic stopped in all directions. The whole KFC had been painted green, which was incredible, like lime green. And there was a ton of media and it kept going like that all day. And they said that they had a supply for uh, to last two weeks that would have been their normal chicken amount. And they sold out in five hours. And I ended up speaking to one of the uh, communications directors at KFC while there. 
and having this great conversation with her. And she was like, this is insane, but like, we know this is the trend. We know people care. And if this is, this pilot is successful, we'll do more pilots. And we're looking at how we can then do it in other states. So I think as activists, like our job is to get really excited, be really present, be really positive when these companies are testing out these products and make it an insane success for them. So did you get a sense that the majority of the people making these double lines around the KFCs were animal activists or just curious uh, Atlantans? Many were vegans and activists. So I think probably half and half. Some of them were just sort of driving by and being like, what's going on? Or this is my normal KFC. I want to try this. Um, but many of the people, we did a, a partnership with Now This. So you can look at the the video that just went up yesterday on it. But uh, you can hear the people interviewed there. Some of them are vegan and activists. Some of them are not. Uh, so a lot of them are kind of vegetarians or vegans who are like, you know, I haven't been to KFC in 20 years, but I wanted to come and I wanted to make sure this stays because I'd like to come to KFC again. So I think there was a mix. That's so fun. And where do we see this video? On Now This, um, okay. which is a, you know, a, a news platform, news video platform. Uh, yeah. So you can find it. Very okay, cool. So what do you think is the best argument when we're just sharing these ideas with others? Is it the environmental argument? What's going to get more people interested in looking at what we believe? So the good thing about industrial animal agriculture, animal agriculture itself, is that there's so many reasons not to do it. There's so many arguments against it. And so you have to gauge the person you're talking to and what their interest is going to be. Um, and what will get their foot in the door. But overwhelmingly in surveys and different polls, health is the main reason that people choose to step into veganism as their first choice. Um, and that often is because of you know cholesterol problems, heart disease, weight loss, all of these things that they're trying to achieve that our current food and farming system really especially if you eat meat and dairy, dairy and eggs is, is going to, you know, land you in a, a really unhealthy place. So the overarching reason that most people are choosing these days uh, to, to try being vegan plant-based is because of health. And what we find is that once people try it, the kind of the thing that seals the deal for them is then the moral and the ethical choice. So if you come at them with the kind of it's morally wrong what you're doing, often a wall will come up and they won't engage. So instead go with the self-interest like, Hey, this is like, Oh, do you have eczema? Did you know dairy causes eczema? Oh, do you have heart and cholesterol problems in your family? Did you know that meat contributes to that? You know, and going at it from that health perspective gets them to move in the right direction. And then once they're in that space, they feel red, more ready because they're not being judged because they're already doing the right thing, more ready to accept the moral moral challenges and the moral problems with, um, eating animals. And so, and then that's often what keeps them vegan though, you know, that, that, the, the, like moral realities of it. And so it's, I think it's stepped process, but you do have mm -hmm. to assess the individual because like a factory farming company, like a meat company that none of that will matter. It's like, yeah. what makes me money? You know, <laughs> what's going to get my shareholders and my board happy. I have heard people say that, we are not 100% forthcoming when we push the health argument and then talk about a lot of processed food alternatives, that there's not um, much science 
that suggests that eating these alternatives and and other kinds of of rich processed vegan food is that much better for health? What would you say to that? Um, well, I I there's a fundamental fact that like plant based food doesn't have cholesterol in it, right? That's yes. just that's just a fact. That's and, a fact, right? And that's a very big cause for heart attacks and clogging our arteries and causing major health issues. And it, it might be that if you ate lentils and rice every week, that's the healthiest option. But if you're choosing between um, a plant-based burger and a meat burger, definitely the plant-based burger is better metrically, like totally empirically speaking, because it doesn't have cholesterol in it. And that's just a fact. So it's all in increments of better. And if you want to be really healthy, yeah, you should eat plant-based whole foods, but that's not fast food. That's not where what you can get and you're in a rush and it's not convenient. You have to cook. And I do try to eat that way, but sometimes, you know, I got three kids and I'm on the move. Like I am so happy. <laughs> There's an impossible burger now there well, because it's like we're on the road and I'm like, okay, we got to eat. Let's go. And exactly. that's life. You know, well, I think that's the busy practical person's diet whole food, plant-based at home when you're in charge of everything. And when you're not (laughs) vegan, I I wrote in one of my books, you want to make the best choice from what's available. And that's really all you have to do. And sometimes you're on an interstate and thank goodness. Now the choices on that interstate are light years (laughs) beyond what they were two years ago. It's amazing. So you do have three children. How old are they? And what's it like being a vegan family in Atlanta? So I have uh, 12, nine and five. Uh, So yeah, so it's a lot of fun um, and a lot of challenges. They're all vegan, of course. Um, You know, I think they do pretty well. And they, they live in a world that like me being vegan, they, I did not live in. So the other day, you know, I'm making them breakfast and they're like, can we have some smoked Gouda in an omelet? And I'm like, who are you? Like, come on. Like, and they're getting their just eggs with their like, follow your heart, vegan Gouda cheese. And they're having like a delicious omelet for their breakfast. And so they're, they kind of go into the world thinking, why isn't everybody vegan? Like this, like what is going on here? Because they grew up like this. It's easy. Um, and I think that if I, I sometimes think I, I, I just should make it, uh, if I had time, I think a great endeavor and for vegan families out there, kind of just sharing your recipes and sharing how easy it is to be vegan is a great option. So my, like my son in his school, his teacher, they had me come in and talk to the class about like my career. And then they said, can you just send us like recipes once a week, about, like one thing that you make? And it's so easy to do that. And our babysitter said, oh, after seeing you guys be vegan and how easy it is. I turn vegan because she's like, uh, I eat, she's like, I can eat baked potatoes and broccoli and cashew cheese every day. That's great. Uh, you know, and it's like just trying to make it. I think our, we, we a, need to stop. I'm sorry. We're going to oh, get a hard cut off. Yeah. Thank you for talking to my class. Everybody be happy, be healthy, be blessed. My be pleasure, vegan. Victoria. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. 
My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.